Let's do pray one more time before we look at this important topic. Let's pray. Father, we do ask for you to really speak your words into our hearts as your people. We pray that you have accomplished your highest purposes in each of our lives and in and through this church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there was this guy, and uh, he made an appointment with a certain pastor. It wasn't me, but he made an appointment with a certain pastor because he was very concerned about his wife's depression. Well, once he made the appointment, he and his wife went in to see the pastor. And he told the pastor, he's he tried everything and nothing seems to work to help her with this depression. So the pastor tried for about 30 minutes everything he knew to do. And again, nothing really works. She's totally unresponsive. So finally, after about an hour, the pastor jumps out of his chair, walks over, pulls the woman out of her chair, hugs her, and gives her a big kiss. Then turns to the husband and says, that's all you need to do three times a week. Well, the husband said, oh, dear, I can only bring her here on Thursdays. <laughs> well, on this Valentine's week, I do want to interrupt our series and focus a bit on the importance of marriage and having a marriage the way God intended for us to have it. And I want to begin by telling you a true story. There was a British couple, and uh, they were going to be married on a yacht. They invited all their friends to come down, but they met with the chef beforehand to say what they wanted at their reception was they wanted to have mountains and mountains of prawns, you know, shrimp-like little critters, prawns. Now, they had a very strong British accent, and so the cook did not really know for sure what they're saying, and he asked them again, you sure you want that? They said, no matter what it takes, no matter how much money, no matter where you got to go to get them, we want mountains and mountains of prawns. So the cook said, all right, that's what you want. So sure enough, they went out on the yacht, and the whole wedding party's out there, and they had a the great wedding, and that's time for the reception. Before they really release everybody to the reception, the groom grabbed a couple of his, his groomsmen and said, I want to show you what we're going to eat. He was so excited. They ran down to the back of the boat where they had the ice sculpture and the flowers and all the decorations. And then he saw the, you know, the containers, all the, holding the, the big uh, tubs that are holding the, the food. He runs over and grabs two of them and pulls the lid open and says, look what we're having to eat. And there it was. Prunes, mountains and mountains of prunes. <laughs> now he understands why the cook was a little bit confused. But I'm pretty sure the wedding got off to a running start. <laughs> At least it was a very moving reception. <laughs> but it is a true story. I think it's a prime example of how couples really have these sky-high hopes of something when it comes to their wedding and their marriage. And I can't think really, in all honesty, of any area of life that routinely has sets higher levels of expectation for people to really hang their hopes on than this pros the prospect of marriage. And I'm also not aware of any area in life that can result in the depth of disappointment and heartbreak and dashed hopes as much as marriage. In fact, I think the whole way that we go about it in our culture, the whole way we do weddings, and so forth, I think contribute to the fantasy nature surrounding this idea of marriage. It all starts with courtship. Think about this the way we do it. We dress up in things we don't normally wear to go places we don't normally go to do things we don't normally do. And that starts the whole thing off. And then 
There's engagement where a couple, think about this, a couple who's flat broke goes out and buys what? A diamond. Think about it. And then the wedding day comes, and they got this regular guy. This groom is he's stuffed in a tuxedo that has equipment that he doesn't even know how it works. How does this cumber thing work? And then you got the bride who spent three days making herself look like a goddess for three hours. And then you have the bridal party. You got all these guys in rented tuxes, and then you got girls that buy dresses that they'll never wear again in public. My point is simply this, that we approach this whole process of hitching two people together in this culture. The way we do it kind of adds to a certain surrealness to the whole thing. I mean, there's like this mystical fantasy-like aura surrounding courtship and marriage, weddings, and honeymoons, and it intrigues all of us. And then, after all that, then, a short time after the wedding festivities, you're sitting in an apartment, sparsely furnished, across the breakfast table from a spouse that doesn't look anything like the wedding pictures, <laughs> and you're arguing over who's going to take out the trash. So you've sort of gone from prawns to prunes in your marriage. So what I want to do this morning is I want to talk a little bit about how do you keep your marriage from going from prawns to prunes? How do you keep from losing that loving feeling? And if it's already happened, how do you reverse it? There is a way, and the Bible tells us how. So we're going to look at Malachi chapter 2. It's the last book in the Old Testament. If you have your Bibles, you go to Matthew, take a left, and there's Malachi. We'll also put these verses on the screen, because from Malachi chapter 2, we're going to have some great insight into how to keep from losing that loving feeling, but if you lost it, how to get it back. Let me give you a little background in the book of Malachi. It's about 100 years have passed since the return of the Jews back to the land of Israel after the captivity for 70 years in Babylon. The city of Jerusalem and the second temple have been built, but the initial enthusiasm of the people who returned has really well worn off. Following a period of revival under Nehemiah and Ezra, you can read those books in your Old Testament. There was a time of revival under both those leaders, Nehemiah and Ezra. The people and the priests after that had backslidden horribly into kind of a mechanical going through the motions of observance uh, to the law of Moses. There are actually three things that the book of Malachi highlights that were evidence of how backslidden they were. There was, number one, a lax in their worship. That's addressed in the book of Malachi. Number two, they were delinquent in their tithing. That's also addressed in the book of Malachi. Number three, they were unfaithful to their spouses. And they didn't understand why God was not responding to them and blessing them and answering their prayers in the state they were in. So the prophet Malachi is sent by God to rebuke them and to call them to repentance. By the way, it's interesting, throughout history, the people of God have tended to become lax in those three areas when they backslide. Those three areas of enthusiasm, when their enthusiasm for God is down, they, they become lax in their worship, they become delinquent in their tithing, and they also become unfaithful to their marriage partner. And maybe I've described someone here today or someone online that that applies to. But God sent the prophet to rebuke the people so they would repent and turn back to him with full hearts. Today, I don't want to take all three of those. I just want to focus on one of those, one of those areas that people tend to be lax in when enthusiasm for God is low. 
And that is that God actually rebukes the men for letting their marriages deteriorate, for treating their wives, as he says, treacherously, or for letting their marriage go from prawns to prunes. Let's read it. Malachi chapter 2, verse 13 says, And this is another thing you do, talking to these people. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, with groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Yet you say, for what reason? Like, why is he not blessing us? Why is he not answering our prayers? You say, for what reason? Malachi answers it. Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. So in this rebuke, the Lord actually reveals three truths that, that would have kept their marriages from going bad. Three truths. These three truths are revealed in a way which really describes how the wives are being treated by their husbands. So God actually describes these wives this way. Number one, the wife of your youth. Number two, your companion. And number three, your wife by covenant. And I want to use those three truths as kind of an outline for us today. And I want to give you three ways to keep your marriage from going from prawns to prunes, from going bad, or if it already has, how to reverse it from this outline out of this passage of Scripture. The first truth that can keep our marriage from going bad, number one is this, realize that your wife is the wife of your youth. Now, why does God remind them about that? I think God's trying to point out to them that that man or woman that you're married to is that same person that you fell in love with some time ago. Perhaps many years have elapsed, a lot of different circumstances maybe have obscured your view of her or your view of him. It may be difficult to see beyond the memories of all kinds of problems. But the truth is many of us who are are sitting next to today the person that we fell in love with and we married. I think God is using the phrase, the wife of your youth, because he wants us to think back to those feelings we had for each other when we were first married. I think he wants us to rekindle the romance of that relationship. So here's what I want to ask you to do. I want you to think back for a moment, all of you that are married or heading down that direction, you're engaged or you're dating. I want you to think back to your very first date. Think back to that moment. I want you to think back to the very first kiss. I want you to think back to some of the fun and crazy things you used to do together. Anyone here want to guess where I took Tracy on our first date in Arlington? Now, if you ask her, she'll tell you something different than I'm about to tell you. She'll tell you our first date was to Pit Grill. Pit Grill was a greasy spoon right there on Collins, close to Randall Mill. And I did take her there first, but it was a pre-date. It wasn't a date. I was kind of still checking around. Let me tell you the first, first real date. She'll tell you something different. Our first official date well, actually was pretty romantic. We had, I had a friend of mine, a single guy, lived in a house in Grand Prairie, and we had the whole thing set up. I told Teresa, I said, just be ready for me to pick you up this date, and I'm going to take you somewhere. It's a surprise. And so she's, 
she's ready wearing this beautiful dress, and she just looks, you know, like a knockout. And, and so I, I pick her up, and I, she says, where are we going? I said, it's a surprise. So then I pull into a neighborhood, and she's thinking, where is this crazy guy taking me? Some house. I pull, pull up to the house, and so we come up, and my friend had cleared out his living room and had one table in the middle of the living room with a white cloth, tablecloth there and a candle lit. He had a fireplace going. And then he came and he showed up at the door with a tuxedo and he faked a French accent. <laughs> and he brings us in and sits us down. And then he goes and gets us steak dinners. And Tracy had told me beforehand, I said, what would be your perfect date? She said, if at the end of the date I could sit by the fireplace with popcorn and hot chocolate. So I had popcorn and hot chocolate by the fireplace. I mean, it, it really, it was an awesome time. It really worked because later on, she asked me to marry her. <laughs> Actually, it was two dates later. She didn't really ask me to marry her. She said, I just want you to know if you ask me to marry you, I will say yes. I thought, woo, take the pressure off. Appreciate it. But we could all swap stories of all the creative, fun things that we used to do. But my question is, what have you done lately? I think God is telling us today, remember that person you're married to is that person you fell in love with a long time ago. For some of you, not that long ago. For some of you, a long time ago. And go back and think about the things you did back then for a moment. Think about how creative you used to be. Jesus tells the church in Ephesus this. Revelation chapter 2, verse 4. He says, but I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Now, of course, he's talking about the first love they had with him, Jesus. They had actually grown cold in their relationship to Christ. So he tells them what to do about it. How do you get that back? He tells them in the next verse. How do you get that love experience back? He says in verse 5, Revelation 2, 5, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen and repent and do the deed you did at first. So he tells them, remember, repent, and redo. Remember, repent, and redo. That's how you get your love back. It's true in the spiritual realm. Some of us spiritually need to re remember how it used to be when we were walking with white-hot passion for Christ. We need to remember that time, repent about the coldness of our hearts now, and then redo the things we did back then for spiritual revival. But I think this principle is also true in a marriage relationship. Remember, repent, and redo. Get that loving feeling back. Turn things around. Number one, remember. Remember what it used to be like when you were romantic and creative. Remember how it was at first. Start there. Then repent. Realize that you've probably let, up a lot, let a lot of stored grievances mount up, that you might need to spend some time forgiving each other for before you can move forward. Apologize, reconcile, get back on track. Some of it might just be the pace of life caused you guys to drift away. Slow down, pull back together, repent, and then redo. Do the romantic things you used to do and start today. And that leads us to the first challenge. Of these three points, I want to give you a challenge, kind of an assignment to do as couples. Challenge number one is this. On your drive out of here today, plan your next date. Now, some of you might need to say, we're not ready today. We've got to just forgive each other for a little while. Well, start there then. Start there. I'm serious about this. Get home, face each other, and walk through it one after another. Would you forgive me for such and such? The other person says, I forgive you. Say the words. Don't say, 
don't you want to ask me to forgive you for this, this, and this? No, that's not how it works. Will you forgive me? Just bring your stuff for such and such. And the other person says, I forgive you. Then they say, will you forgive me for such and such? The other person says, I do. I forgive you. Say the words. Get all that done. Then plan the next day. And some of you today, this whole day really needs to be focused on kind of getting your marriage going the right direction. That's why we're having this marriage tune-up for 1 to 2.30, lunch is provided. So after the service, you'll be able to go over across to the gym, and you'll be able to be part of the marriage tune-up, where we really want to give a focus on this Valentine's week. This is a real focus on really just want to see our marriages, all of our marriage strengthened here at Grace Community Church. So that's the first truth. The first truth is realize you're married to the wife of your youth, or realize, think back to remembering the person that you're married to is the person you fell in love with. Now, some of you had some wrecked relationships in the past, and you're in a marriage right now. Whatever it is, on this marriage right now, get it going right. Walk under forgiveness for whatever's happened in the past and start right on this thing that you're connected to right now and make it right before God. And think back to those first moments, those first moments when you fell in love. Start there. All right, number two is realize that you're married to your companion your companion. You didn't just marry your lover. You didn't just didn't marry your servant. You didn't marry your provider. You're married to your companion. These are God's words. You're sitting next, many of you today are sitting next to your partner. And God wants us to know that he intended marriage to be an experience in deep friendship. God's intention really is that the person we're married to would be our very best friend on planet earth. And if that's not the case, that we would work toward making that happen. And again, I realize that men and women are so different in so many ways. In fact, I came across a book this week. Some of you might have read it. Here's the title of the book. The title of the book is Why Men Can Only Do One Thing at a Time and Why Women Never Stop Talking. <laughs> that's the title of the book. I'm not making this up. But it's a book about the differences between men and women, and there's one, there's one uh, quote in here I just want to read to you that I just thought was classic. It says this about the differences between men and women. It says, brain scans, brain scan tests show that when a man, man's brain is in resting state, at least 70% of his electrical activity is shut down. Scans of women's brains show a level of 90% activity during the same state. Confirming that women are constantly receiving and analyzing information from their environment. A woman knows her children's friends, their hopes, dreams, romances, secret fears, and what they're thinking and how they're feeling, and usually what mischief they're plotting. <laughs> Men are just vaguely aware that there are some short people who happen to live in the same house. <laughs> but even though... We are so different. You're so different from your spouse. It's still God's intention that he or she become your best friend. God wants us to know that we're married to the person that ought to be our best friend. And if it's not already the case, then we work toward that happening. That's God's intention. And every time I go on a, a missions trip, I do about three a year where I'm gone, usually about 10 days, sometimes 12, 12 13 days. But each time I do that, I, I buy a stack of, of greeting cards and I, and I label them each day, each, each evening, I write the date on it for Tracy, and I write her a little love note in each one. And some of these cards, so, so each evening, of course, I'm texting her every day, but each evening it's kind of like she has a, a card there, kind of a, a date with me not being there, but it's, it's, most of these cards are romantic. But some of these cards are just affirming our deep, deep friendship that we have with each other. 
And that's really how God intends marriage to be, true companionship, deep friendship as a pattern for our life because we are facing life together, all of life. And I've said this before. I said, you know, if Grace Community Church ever had an election and, and they just kind of voted us out, me and Tracy out, and we, we've already said that we'd still vote for each other, so we'd be okay. <laughs> so you're married to the person who God has ordained should be your best friend. And really, it's to our advantage to start treating our spouse that way. You know, the Bible talks about how, the fact, how, when, we, how when we are married, the two become one flesh. As one flesh, that means there's no longer any win-lose situations. You either win-win or lose-lose. Now, this is very profound. You know, I've, I've, if I could just teach one truth to any couple in a premarital counseling, I'd teach this one truth. When you get married, you are no longer two. Even though you're walking around in two bodies, you are one flesh, and you cannot win-lose anymore. If she loses, you lose. If he loses, you lose. You have got to be committed to winning. And the way to do that is make sure your spouse wins all the time. Because if they lose, you lose. You're, you are one flesh. And that dramatically impacts how you do everything. Because you want to make sure they win in this deal. Because you can't win if they don't win. And so really treating them as your best friend is really to your advantage. Because they're not just will bless them, it will bless you both together as partners. All right, that leads me to challenge number two. Challenge number two, this is, these are assignments. You need to be taking these seriously, all you couples. Challenge number two is determine together one way in which you can strengthen your friendship or one way that you can better function as partners and teammates. So have this conversation today. Think of one way. What can we do that would strengthen our friendship? Think about it. Or what is something we could do that would better help us function as partners and teammates in life? Talk about it and then do that. Okay, then there's a third truth that will keep our marriages from turning from prawns to prunes here. Number three is realize that you are married to your spouse by covenant. This is the word God uses, your spouse by covenant. He says, your wife by covenant. See, God never intended for marriage to be a contract. God's intention is that we understand marriage to be a covenant. So here's the deal about a contract. If I think I've got a contract, then if they're not fulfilling their end of the deal, then I can think the contract's null and void. I don't have to fulfill my end of the deal. But marriage is not a contract, not in God's eyes. It's a covenant. That means that you need to stay true to your commitment, even if your spouse is not staying true to theirs. That's how we handle, that's how we live out a covenant. And I want to remind all you guys that are married here today that you made vows before Almighty God. And I just want to ask you, are you keeping your vows? Are you keeping them? You know, it's amazing to me. I've talked to people so many times that are heading, they're splitting up, they're heading for divorce, and I'll just look at them and say, you made a vow. You made a vow to God. You can't just walk out on this thing. But so many do. We have made vows to God. We have made a covenant that we need to keep, be committed to. And not just end this, this race as roommates, but end really growing in covenantal love. You know, there's great power in this truth that you're married to this, your spouse by covenant. Great power in it. 
While imprisoned by the Nazis in Tegel Prison Cell 92, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a beautiful sermon for a wedding that he hoped to be officiating at between his niece and one of his very good friends, but he never did get to do that. He was killed. But they found the sermon that he wrote for that wedding. And there's a line in that sermon that I think is so powerful and profound. I want to read it to you. The sermon that didn't get preached at a wedding. He says this to, he was going to say this to his niece and his friend. Today you are young and very much in love. And you think that your love will sustain your marriage. It won't. But your marriage can sustain your love. See, realizing that you made a vow before God and realize that you're married to the spouse by covenant, that actually has power in it to sustain your love. I mean, when you realize, wait a second, I am in this thing. I am going to work through whatever happens because we have a covenant. That causes you to press through. That sustains your love. It causes you to work, do the hard work to, to, to bring the healing and the reconciliation and the forgiveness and come out the other side. And pull your marriage back together. It's a powerful thing. You really believe that. That I've got a covenant. And I'm not going to break it. Dr. Larry Bugin wrote a book entitled Love and Renewal. It's a really interesting book. He actually talks about three phases that most marriages go through. If they can make it through the second phase. And get to the third phase. The three phases are, number one, is the, he calls it the romantic love phase. Then the second phase he calls the season of disenchantment. And the third and final stage is what he calls the covenantal love phase. So he points out, first, most relationships start off in courtship with what he calls the romantic love phase. He says this, he says, this is a phase where the relationship's held together with a temporary and vulnerable adhesive called romantic love. He characterizes this phase of romantic love era. He calls it as, as a time where you just have these passionate feelings toward your partner and you pine for them. You know, y'all remember pining? You pine for them. Intense pining. He also characterizes romantic love as that era where you fall, prayer, you fall prey to ecstatic loss of judgment. I mean, you know, you're so smitten that your behavior patterns are a little bit out of control. So you buy each other expensive gifts, even though you don't really have any money to eat. You know, and, or you got bald tires on your car. You can't pay your rent. Or you stay up late at night gazing into each other's eyes, and then you can't hardly wake up to go to work or go to class. He says, he, ta- he calls this period of time a time of, he says, selective blindness. He says, you don't, you don't even notice the neutral or negative aspects of your partner's personality, all you see is just exclusively the wonderful pieces and parts of them. And you want to withdraw, he says, during that stage from the whole world and just be exclusive into your little fantasy world where you have this torrid romance. He says, and then you pass into the next phase, the phase he calls the season of disenchantment. And some of you know well how this goes. Reality kind of sets in. You mean... uh, I have to go to work? Yeah, you got to go to work. You got to go to school. You got to shop for groceries. You got to get the car fixed. You got to pay bills. Instead of seeing your partner's only positive attributes, you begin to see some of their neutral attributes and even some things are really starting to bug you about them. But you begin to look at them realistically 
No more selective blindness in this phase. And, and then your, your private you know, fantasy world kind of gives it into reality when you're invaded by family and friends and all kinds of, of different relationships. And then you get married and you have kids and you got this little runny-nosed person running around that intentionally sabotages every romantic you know, possibility that you try to arrange. And many of you can relate to that. Uh, some years ago, when Tracy and I were young, when the kids were little, we had this great romantic night planned. So we got the kids to bed early, and everything just working out so well. And just about the time, things were starting to get interesting. <laughs> we heard one of the kids coming down the hallway, moaning. And they had diarrhea, and they'd go to the bathroom, and Tracy bolts out of the bed. She bolts in there, and I got there just in time to see the one sitting, the little boy sitting on uh, the commode diarrhea, throwing up in her hands, and she's catching it. And I'm like, why are you catching it? Just let it go. I mean, we're way past this. Anyway, we finally needed, needs to say to put a serious damper on the evening. So we got him all cleaned up. We got him back in bed, and we kind of tried to get kind of back where we were, romantically speaking. And then we heard the second child coming down the hallway, moaning, same thing. Then the third child, same thing. Well, Dr. Bugin would call that a, a season of disenchantment. <laughs> but we have all kinds of things we go through where reality strikes in and, and life and marriage becomes difficult. And m most marriages actually don't make it very well through this period of time of disenchantment. And that's where half of the marriages end in divorce because they don't get through that time. And I don't know if you know this. This is a statistic that not many people know about. The half that didn't get divorced... 70% of them wish they were married to somebody else. And so this is a period of disenchantment. And I want you to know, first of all, that it is normal. All marriages go through some level of it. What we need to do is grow through it to the final stage that Bugen calls the mature covenantal love stage. Let me talk a little bit about that. It's a stage where you do true intimacy and oneness. It's a stage where your marriage deepens as God intended it to. And, if, and there's really uh, a time where you really learn each other's inner worlds. It's a, it's a time where you have a deep trust in each other, where you can say anything to them. You can say stuff to them you wouldn't say to anybody on planet Earth. And there's a sense in which they even can finish your thought and finish your sentences, and they still love you through it all. You learn to balance the needs and workloads in this relationship. You make sure that no one's feeling unappreciated or used. You're both partners. You make sure each other feels honored. You divide the workload evenly. You treat each other honorably, so forth. You learn how to ask for what you really need. You stop playing hide-and-seek and playing games. You just tell the truth to each other. And then you respond in this loving, relating way. That's this covenantal love stage that is the goal for all our marriages, to get to that place and to mature in that. And those marriages that have a high probability of really making it to the finish line happily, are those marriages that really get to that covenantal love stage and grow in it. You know, that's what I want for my marriage. That's what I want for every marriage at Grace Community Church. I want us to finish, finish together, and finish well. You know, it's amazing how we'll break our backs for the boss. We break our backs for neighbors, the kids, church leaders, parents. All the while, our marriage is slowly fading. I think at some point, you know, husband and wife just need to say, time out, time out. What are we doing? What are we letting happen in this marriage? 
and have a hard conversation. The reality, you know, bosses will come and go, jobs will come and go, neighbors will come and go, kids will grow up and move out, hopefully, <laughs> one day. But at the end of it, only two people are left standing in the ring, and that's the husband and wife doing life together, doing exactly what God said they should do, doing the whole race together from start to finish line, the way God designed marriages to function as marathon marriages, as finishing this covenantal love stage. I just encourage you, if you're going to compromise something, compromise other stuff. Don't compromise the marriage stuff. If you're going to lower the bar somewhere, lower the bar somewhere else, not in your marriage. Because I tell you what, you can rebuild all kinds of other stuff, but you lose that, you lose too big. You lose way too big. But I've noticed couples that really make it to the covenantal stage, they've established certain sacred practices and disciplines in their marriage relationship, activities that they do. They do daily or weekly. They do monthly. They do annually. No matter what, they will do these things. They're committed to it. And, they, and they'll, they'll tell the whole world to take a flying leap if they, if they don't like it because they're going to do these things because they're going to make sure their marriage is strong and healthy. They want to make sure they're, commi they're committed to finishing and finishing well together. And this is what we want for our marriages, all of our marriages. So that leads me to challenge number three. The last challenge and last assignment that is, talk, talk about any other commitments or relationships that are taking a toll on your marriage and determine how you can change that. Talk about any other commitments or relationships that are taking a toll on your marriage and determine how you can change that. And make those hard choices, whatever, however, whenever. Make room for your marriage to thrive. Pay attention to it. Breathe life into it. Keep the investment high. And you'll be glad that you did someday. Uh, in closing, I want to, I want to tell you a, a scene that is, just never will go away in my mind. And it's really, I think it's really blessed me and helped and strengthened me. There was a time some years ago, and those of you that are about my age and older remember this, you might have seen it on TV. It was when Billy and Ruth Graham were invited to Washington, D.C. to receive the Congressional Gold Medal of Honor. Some of you might have seen it, and Billy and Ruth were called up on the stage to receive this prestigious award. Senator Bob Dole and some others were on the stage, and they began to read this long list of accomplishments, 50 years of ministry, preaching to millions of people in live audiences, preaching to 2 billion people by satellite television, all the philanthropic interests and so forth, and on and on and on. The accolades, so many of them. And Billy and Ruth, at that time, their faith I mean, their, their, uh, their health was beginning to fade. And they were standing there during all this time. And then Ruth began to be kind of unsteady. And so, and then Billy reached over to kind of hold her up. And, and Vice President Al Gore at the time runs up and puts a chair behind her. And, and they sit her down. And then he went on with all the accolades. And as, as, as they're continuing with all the accolades about Billy and Ruth Graham, Billy is tuned out everything but Ruth. And he is patting her by the arm, and he's saying, you okay? And he's focused, and here they are. I mean, the things that people you know, gave their whole life for, all the accolades, all the glory, and he has tuned it all out for her. And he is fawning over her. And I thought when I saw it, I thought, oh, there's a wise man. There's a man who's figured out what really, what really matters. Everything else comes and goes. Positions come and go, possessions come and go, accolades come and go, trophies, medals, they come and go. Even parents and children come and go. But at the end of the day, the end of a long life, what matters most is who 
you love and who loves you. And at the top of the list is your spouse. May we never forget that. And the way that we do, how do we do this? How do we live out this light that we just talked about, these three challenges? How do we really walk out this guideline for the kind of marriage that God wants us to have? We can't do it without the filling of the Holy Spirit. In fact, that's what Malachi goes on to say in the next verse. See, the next thing that God says that the, to the prophet Malachi, to those who were treating their spouses wrongly, he says this, Malachi 2.15, he says, but not one, not one has done so, not one has treated their spouse treacherously, wrongly. Not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. So it takes being spirit-filled to keep romance in your marriage. It takes being spirit-filled to make your spouse your best friend. It takes being spirit-filled to never forget that you're married to your spouse by covenant, not contract. And it takes being spirit-filled to keep your vows that you made before Almighty God. And that's how we want to close. We want to close by just asking God to do that for all of us, for all of our marriages. Let's stand, if you, if you would, please. Let's stand together and pray. Father, we just want to confess that none of us have done this thing right. None of us have got it all right. And we just confess, we confess, Lord, all the mistakes, all the selfishness, all the bitterness, all the resentment. We confess, Lord, the hateful things that have been said and done. We confess it all, Lord. We thank you that you're so forgiving. Would you just cleanse us now? You said if we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So just cleanse us, Lord. Cleanse every marriage relationship here, Lord. We pray. We pray you pour out your Holy Spirit on every relationship here, every married relationship. Pour out your Spirit. Give us the grace, Lord, to forgive and overlook and endure and continue to believe the best, believe all things, endure all things, hope all things. Lord, fill us with your Spirit, Lord, to just supernaturally love Love, joy, peace. And give us that kind of love for each other that is, is patient and kind. So Lord, we hear we pray your blessing in all of our marriages. And I pray your blessing on all those who will be involved in the marriage tune-up this afternoon, that you just you'll use that time. And this week, you just find us remembering these things that you spoke out of Malachi to how we are to treat our spouse. And so, Lord, we just pray. I pray, Lord, for the marriages here that they're thinking about. Maybe they came in today thinking, we're not just, I want out of this thing. Lord, would you bring healing there? I pray for those that are headed toward marriage right now. Would you prepare them, Lord, to really make a covenantal vow to stay true before they even enter into this thing? I pray for those who've lost their spouses, Lord, and are missing them right now. Would you give them amazing grace right now? Amazing grace from in nearness to you to be able to, to move on even without them. And Lord, I thank you too, Lord, that you uh, can heal and forgive all the past decisions that have been made and relationships that have been wrecked, Lord. And thank you, there's healing. I pray for healing for those who've been out of, have been through a wrecked relationship, been through a painful divorce, or you've been complete healing, Lord, in all those lives. And Lord, to make the church really a bright, shining light of what marriage is supposed to look like. Make us examples. We ask you for the strength to do that by the power of your Holy Spirit. Before I say amen and we're dismissed, we have Connection Coffee in this corner if you have any questions for our staff. If this is your first Sunday here, I'd love to meet you right here in this welcome corner.
But also, let me just say that we're having something new, new today, and that is this 20-minute quick presentation across the parking lot in the gym about understanding the ministries of Grace Community Church. And if you're new here, you've been here for just weeks or months, would like to be part of that, just going to take 20 minutes. If you have kids in Ventureland, please get them first, and then go across. And also, we have some leaders down here that would be glad to pray for you if you have any other prayer needs. So, Father, we just pray you dismiss us with your blessing and use us to be a blessing this week. Pray in Jesus' name, and everybody says, Amen. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.